Since its launch in 2018, Extinction Rebellion has transformed the scale and possibilities of UK climate activism, and in doing so, made the climate crisis a central issue of British politics. Now, in a seemingly significant shift in strategy, the group has temporarily paused its campaign of public disruption. Instead, it says it's prioritising relationships over roadblocks and is working towards what it's calling the big one, mobilising 100,000 people to surround the Houses of Parliament from the 21st of April to demand action on the climate crisis. Meanwhile, other groups are continuing a range of strategies, throwing super paintings, blocking roads, occupying fossil fuel infrastructure and deflating SUV tyres. But what's actually working when it comes to bringing about the end of the fossil fuel era? And what's it even possible to achieve? I'm Claire Heimer, a commissioning editor at Navarra Media, and joining me to discuss these questions are three climate activists from different parts of the climate movement. Claire Farrell, a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, Rachel Bossler, an activist with Just Stop Oil, an offshoot of XR which remains committed to tactics of public disruption, and Alice Swift, an activist with Ender Galenda, a German direct action group most famous for occupying coal mines. So I'm sure everyone tuning into this podcast will be well aware of the magnitude of what we're up against when it comes to climate breakdown. I wanted to start by asking each of you, do you remember the first time that the scale of the climate crisis really dawned on you and you thought, I really need to do something about this? Claire, do you want to start? It's an ongoing journey, really, coming to terms with how fucked this situation is. I don't know that I could say there is a time when I had a realisation because all of my work since studying has been towards, you know, sustainability, invested an enormous amount of time and effort in the problems with the fashion sector, for example. For sure, something changed in me somewhere around 2015 or 16. And it wasn't really that I thought climate was definitely really, really bad. It was more that I, I had a sense that something was so completely wrong in our society <laughs> and in our culture. And I started work then, which led me towards all of the steps that, that sort of prepared me personally for the finding myself in the circumstances where we launched Extinction Rebellion. So for me, it's probably not actually the emergency of the climate that tipped me over the edge. It's something, it's something more cultural. Mm -hmm. Rachel, do you have a moment that you can think of? For me, answering this question is a bit different because I'm from Southern California. So I've grown up in the middle of the climate crisis. When I was a kid, we would have forest fires every couple of years. Um, they became slowly sort of every other year to the point where my final week of high school was actually cancelled because there were so many fires burning at the same time. The air quality was too low to go outside. Um, and, you know, beyond that, we've got droughts, the super heavy rainstorms that come afterwards, which lead to mudslides. Um, you know, I've seen the loss of life that happens because of the climate crisis. So... For me, the realization wasn't how serious it was. It was that no one is going to save us and that our corrupt politicians, the current system that we have, is just completely incapable or unwilling to deal with um, this crisis. They'd rather walk us all off a cliff edge than sort of deal with the fact that we need to change our society and that they need to give up some of their power. And for me, I guess that really happened uh, Around 2016, 2017, as a result of various political things going on. 
When was the first time that you'd say you got involved in climate activism? I didn't get involved in climate activism for quite a while, actually. Um, I'm really happy to be on Navara and talking about all of this because I've always been the kind of person who really wants to turn to sort of books and theory and analyzing and sort of really trying to understand the problem. And I had all of these kind of classical critiques of existing climate activists. I was one of those people going, oh, well, I think Extinction Rebellion, if they were more anti-capitalist, then I would go along. And I sort of found myself in this sort of armchair strategy space, constantly criticizing and criticizing and criticizing. And then one day I went along to a Just Up Oil talk and someone said something that really, really hit me that we're not perfect and we're not trying to be. Um, we're not claiming any of these tactics or strategies are perfect, but we're scared and we're willing to sort of tr do whatever it takes, try whatever it takes and be imperfect and learn from that. And that just really helped me to realize that my sort of turn to theory and books and talking strategy in the pub was really just to hide the fact I was really scared of what it actually might mean to become an activist. And Alice, how about you? I grew up in a family where kind of my extended family, my uncle, uh, was very environmentalist. He ended up being one of the first organic milk farmers in the country and he kind of uh, after his brother convinced him to go organic, um, after he'd kind of um, had this awakening um, on a kind of biodynamic or permaculture, I guess, before those terms existed, farm uh, in the 70s or 80s in France. So I, I, had, I can trace my ecological kind of awareness back to then. And climate change was always a topic um, at the dinner table. We were talking about it from as long as I can remember. And so I kind of got involved in local politics when I was a teenager uh, to try and get doorstep recycling in Rutland, uh, which is where I grew up, the smallest county in England. And so I, I kind of got involved in those mainstream and normal channels. And then when I went to Birmingham University in 2010, um, I guess my radicalization uh, began there in the student movement, um, which was learning about how capitalism has created the climate crisis. Uh, and that kind of cemented when I went on a trip to uh, stay with the Beaver Lake Cree First Nations community in Canada in 2011 with a number of other um, student activists from People and Planet organization and just learning about the absolute brutal destruction of um, these people's way of lives, their indigenous traditions, um, all for the sake of some really um, poor quality oil that takes a huge amount of energy to extract and refine. Claire, I want to come back to you. So XR made headlines at the start of the year when the movement put out a statement saying, we quit. Um, can you explain a bit about what was going on there? And I guess a bit about how XR's strategy has developed over time? When we started off, we had like quite a clear idea about what we were going to try and do in the April of 2019. And, you know, in some ways it, it worked. I feel like some of the things that we came out and said we thought we needed to achieve were not completely achieved, but they were partially sort of absorbed by the system. And what I mean by that is like, we said, tell the truth. And that means that you need to declare an emergency and then act like it. So use all of your efforts to educate and inform the general public about this position they actually find themselves in so that they're going to advocate for the kinds of things that we know need to change in society. And that would mean you have to work with all the institutions and the media would have to fucking wind their necks in and help and everyone would need to help. But actually all we got was parliament 
declaring an emergency. And everyone kind of went, oh, well done, that's great. And many of us also thought, so what? And as it turns out, it's totally so what? The the Act Now thing was like, we need a zero carbon date or a net zero date and we need to set it and la la la. And then everyone goes, well, you know, they did put one in. It's fucking 25 years later than we thought it should be. And they're not even making proper plans towards it, but whatever, like you got that net zero date. So that's like an absorption. And then we also said we need citizens' involvement in politics to be able to make better decisions that are more just, that are more fair to society because normal people making them. And they held an assembly on climate, but obviously they commissioned it to the 2050 date. And then, as far as I'm aware, have done very little to respond to the suggestions, even things that are no-brainer suggestions for policies, which almost every single person in the country would advocate for, like just ground private jets. But they won't even respond to things like that. That part of the launch and and moving quickly into sort of 2019 into 2020 was, was relatively, like you could call it somewhat of a success. But then since, you know, having a decentralized network of activists who are simultaneously organizing sort of autonomously towards a lot of local issues and trying to hold the system together so that it's capable of doing things with sort of more increased power where everyone does the same thing at the same time together in a place, uh, you know, holding that dynamic is really challenging Mm. in terms of organizing. And it's that sort of old mobilizing versus organizing type of uh, conversation. I think it's quite amazing that it's, that the XR still exists, frankly, due to the pandemic, because a lot of organizing obviously just went you know, through the floor because people couldn't meet up face to face. We do rely on traditional methods like meeting up in real rooms with real people face to face and saying, are you going to go and get nicked with me? Or are you going to go and do this thing? And you can't organize shit like that on the internet. What felt really pressing, I guess, to the people who brought this this proposal forwards to say, actually, we just, we think we could pause public disruption in order to get everyone out was like, If so many people understand, if like the majority of the British voting public want bigger action on climate, they're actually shit scared when you poll them. All of the people that understand how serious the climate is all want action. Then how come so many of them never fucking come? Like, why don't you show up? Is there something about this that you haven't accepted is true, which is that you are going to live through probably social collapse because of this situation? Not your kids, not your grandkids, but like you. We're going to like see massive breakdown the rest of this decade. I don't think most people have really accepted that. But also like if you do think it's that serious, which some people do, and you still don't fucking show up, it's like what do we got to do to encourage you to come and like hang out with Mm. us and talk about making the movement broader, bigger, more inclusive, stronger in numbers? And so... Given the ecosystem has changed because of Just Stop Oil, because of Insulate Britain, because of loads of other smaller groups that have popped up doing more specific work, more specific work on chasing down politicians, more specific work on infiltrating AGMs, more specific work on blocking motorways, that we thought, well, why don't we try and lower the bar and say, come, 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 and then let's talk. Let's get around in a space and then let's meet and see what can be done if the movement sort of pulls together mm. in a in a much broader sense. I don't want anyone to misread something and think that suddenly we don't approve of Just Stop Oil or we don't approve of people that are going out and doing like direct action. So you're saying that the the We Quit declaration 
obviously this isn't XR quitting. That was maybe more just a way to get attention for what the, the new announcement was, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, but also to make that noise loudly enough so that people would notice so that the people that are sitting around who give their money to Friends of the Earth every month and go, well, I do agree, but I can't hang out with them because they look really smelly and they're really annoying and they piss people off. Like, so that they actually get hear the memo. You needed to do that in a way where they actually get that message mm. so that it's like cemented enough that they go, oh, right, well, I've always been saying that if they didn't do things that piss people off, then of course I'd be their friend. So it's like, fucking come on then. <laughs> that was the that was part of the intention to just make sure that people understood that we were going to say okay if we pause that will you show up mm. come on now and also our good friends in high vis <laughs> you know are doing doing perfectly well at holding up like the flag for disruptive direct action so you know can can we help to open the open a space like to bring other people into in uh, Bill Moyer's Movement Action Plan from 1987, which I believe is one of the key reference texts for XR, he describes a process whereby movements, even though they've set out what they've achieved during the initial stages, which is a little bit what you were talking about just earlier, they kind of have a sudden crisis of faith. And this happens kind of around the same time that the movement achieves what he calls like the majority stage. So kind of when the movement starts to operate with majority support. Is, is that the stage that XR is at right now? I feel like we were at that stage a little while ago. Basically, you get to a point where, as you say, you've got the public majority backing the kinds of policies, changes that are needed. They want action on the issue as well. So in a sense, like public opinion is sort of caught up. There is a very high desire for action. People might not agree on what that is, but there is a massive demand for politics to take this scenario seriously and to do something about it. But yeah, I think, you know, that's possibly also partly why taking a view on the sort of ecosystem of what's going on in terms of the environment movement, the climate movement, the social justice movement, you know, all the all the the, the striking workers, the people striking from the NHS, the all of the sort of like difficulties around people not being able to pay their bills. Uh, this was all really present for us at the beginning of of the of the year, sort of, and sort of the lead up to it before Christmas, saying like, well, actually, we're in, we've got to take a sort of view of the ecosystem here and what can XR do with its networks and its collateral and its voice and its presence to try and be like maximally helpful, I guess, in that in that sense. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people said to me at the early stages of this conversation, look, you can't, well you know, nice ideas, good job for someone to do, but like XR can't be the convener because nobody fucking likes you. And um, and I was like, well, yeah, fair enough, but who else can do it? And if we think that it needs to be done, then let's try and do it. And talking to other people recently about like, you know, as you will probably be well aware if you've ever tried to do this kind of work, relationship building is very challenging, coalition building if you think getting nicked is unpleasant, try building a fucking coalition, that's all I'll say. But I do think that it needs to be done and we've made a decent go of it. it does change the flavour of XR somewhat. 
Mm. Uh, it definitely feels like the movement's in in some kind of a transitionary stage, if you see mm. what I mean. Yes, yeah, so I want to get into that a bit more in terms of the range of tactics that are being used across the climate movement and like how these movements sit alongside one another. Some tactics are much more geared towards generating attention, what some people might call kind of like attentional activism, whether that's, you know, sit-ins, surrounding parliament, uh, roadblocks, public disruption, whereas some tactics are much more geared towards targeting fossil fuel infrastructure, um, and are primarily about kind of like shutting those things down, so shutting down oil refineries, coal mines, etc. One of Andreas Malm's criticisms of XR early on was that its strategy is based on research, which is about how to topple governments, and governments aren't the same as kind of fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, and he talks about how you know the governments of the British Raj in 1947, or East Germany in 1990, or Egypt in 2011, um, were all kind of hangovers from previous periods of capitalism, which were kind of susceptible to being knocked down quite easily. Whereas fossil fuel infrastructure is very, very deeply embedded in the structure of our lives. Um, so I kind of want to put this question to each of you. Uh, to what extent are the groups that you're involved with interested in attentional activism versus targeted activism? And I guess, what are the limits of that? Uh, Claire, do you want to start? Well, one of the things that we've been doing since this uh, New Year's statement is encouraging people to take direct action to places where we can quite clearly point at the problem. So people have continued to do direct actions on banks, at the media, airports, not doing the wholesale public disruption, sit in the road somewhere very public and get in the way and make a big fuss, but do make a big fuss over some of the problem points from money to the media to the to the fossil fuel sector. The moral argument that Marm is making is is totally legit, right? If you're if you if you're facing uh, the intentional destruction of civilized life on Earth, or an organized community of of human beings on the planet, is not going to be possible because of the destruction caused by this infrastructure. You would think, wouldn't you, that people would go out and take it apart themselves? <laughs> My personal question about it is, you know, that kind of work gets you in a lot of fucking trouble. Doesn't get you put on remand for four months like Roger. Gets you a long sentence. So you either have a movement of people who are trying to sort of get away with doing things that are quite extreme, at which point people who get caught get really fucked and we lose some of our best people from the movement to very long jail terms, which is totally not what I think is a good idea in these circumstances. Um, plus, I don't think that that's easy to build like popular support for. So you have a problem if you want to bring everyone along with you because it's basically about collective survival. Then you ideally want to have a broader support. And if you do those kinds of actions, it tend, I think it probably tends to lead you towards a, a lesser support. So what XR has done a lot of in terms of trying to, you know, raise the alarm and direct people to certainly like I think since April 2019 which was like very wholesale let's shut down London you know there's been the Murdoch uh, print works action there's been actions at Tufton Street there's been actions at breaking the windows of banks there's been action so it's been trying to sort of show the story of where all these kinds of problems are so that people can understand and hopefully send like a ripple not only through the public narrative, but for example, on breaking the windows of the banks, I know that I know that Gail's been told by someone who used to be senior at a UK high street bank, 
which I think is probably Barclays, based on the conversation they had, that actually the people who are trying to change things from the inside of those organisations say to us, you've made my job easier by breaking the windows. So there is, it's not just attention seeking, it does actually sort of impact people through the space, if you see what I mean. And I, and I think sometimes an occupation outside a place in the city can have a big impact on the people working inside it, just as, you know, um, the window breaking or the occupation of the airport or the whatever it is. So there is a problem with like, in my opinion, with there being too, too much in the mix. It's all like in a ratio, in a recipe or something, too much in the mix of people in fancy dress doing a performance. Like, it's okay to have some of that, <laughs> but sometimes we're guilty as activists of creating the background colour for journalists when there's actually no means of affecting the people in the space that you need to affect. Mm. So, like, doing the thing to the bank, I know Mom would say, well, you're not dismantling the infrastructure, so it's the wrong kind of criminal damage because it's performative, it's in an urban setting and blah, blah, blah. But I would disagree with that on the grounds that I think it does it does have some impact, just not the same type of impact as he's saying. But I do think that where you're completely incapable of making any impact on, say, the delegates at the G7 because it's militarised police and you can't get within <laughs> several miles of the people that you're trying to affect, then I think doing a, a performance in a funny costume outside is... is has very limited <laughs> benefits to us strategically, personally. Rachel, I want to bring you in here. What are the what are the conversations that have been happening around uh, these questions within Just a Foil? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, first, before I answer that, I just want to echo something that Claire F uh, just said, which is that really the most important question about this debate is why won't people get on the streets? How can we get more people onto the streets? Because ultimately that's the most important thing that we can be looking at here today. We can look at these small kind of strategy issues, attention versus targeted versus this versus that, um, and kind of get lost in all of this infighting. But really when we look at the scale of the crisis that we're facing, when we think about how many refugees there already are, how many more there's going to be, about the extreme amount of pain and suffering, about what this really means. And if we connect with that emotionally, and if everyone listening connects with that emotionally and asks themselves, you know, why am I not on the streets? Why am I not um, involved in any of these groups? Um, I think that's really hopefully what we can get to in this conversation. Um, but when it comes to sort of attentional versus targeted activism, uh, Just Stop Oil is committed to doing whatever is nonviolently possible. And we have tried a range of actions. But what we sort of recognize is that power is not just material. It's also symbolic. So Just Up Oil has gone to fossil fuel infrastructure and it disrupted the flow of oil. Uh, we did this um, for several months and nobody reported on it. And we had a really hard time getting people to want to do this because as Claire says, the way that the British state treats people who do this is really, really oppressive. And it is something that you know, when you are sort of sat in a chair criticizing a movement from afar, I don't think people recognize is sort of what it really feels like to confront power and what the kind of consequences of that are. But, you know, power is also symbolic. It's in the culture industry, it's in the media, it's in sport, and it's in financial institutions. So we've also sort of done actions targeting those institutions, those sort of pillars of power as well. And really, I can't tell you what is the most effective 
but we're committed to trying all of it and to sort of seeing and learning and growing from that. Alice, do you want to come in here? Yeah, sure. Um, I just want to say on the not sure mum would be in favour of uh, breaking the windows of banks. I think he probably would actually, you know. Um, and it's about all of the infrastructure, isn't it? And banks are very much part of the fossil fuel um, infrastructure uh, that exists in fossil capitalist society. So Ender Galenda, part of the massive attraction is physically shutting down coal mines um, and doing so in a way that, you know, it's there targeting the problem at source, but it, it also creates a media spectacle. And I guess that's why its reputation kind of precedes it in that you see these images of thousands of people all dressed in white overalls um, shutting down a coal mine. Um, that that image travels and has traveled. Um, and I guess for me as well, like Ender Galenda is, I'm, I'm also involved in a, an organization called Reclaim the Power, which like gets no attention. We've been very dormant since the pandemic, um, but we were one of the key components along with the really fierce resistance um, against fracking from the local communities and frack off. Um, we were one of the key components of um, the anti-fracking struggle and we won that fight. And we won that fight by understanding the supply chain of the fracking industry, shutting down the sites and shutting down all of the elements that we could possibly uh, do with the, with the limited numbers that we had um, to cause massive economic disruption to the industry and just slow the whole thing down and make it really much more expensive to do their to do their exploratory drilling and to do their tests um and to make it um economically unviable um and i'd say with reclaim the power part of our issue was this kind of idea of like why bother mobilizing you know thousands of people actually i don't i don't want to do reclaim the power a disservice here we always tried to get people along but there was an understanding amongst some quarters of like, why why bother mobilizing thousands of people when you can shut a fracking site down with like six really dedicated people that are prepared to have really in intense legal repercussions. But of course, that's a massive ask, isn't it? You know, people facing prison time. I think that we greatly utilized those times when we were threatened with severe legal action to generate a media spectacle. So when there was the Frack Free Three, the three young men that were uh, sentenced to a year in prison, we courted the media, you know, it was really hard media work, making it this spectacle, this horror that these three upstanding young men of the community were going to be sentenced to prison for a year. And we couldn't have generated better media attention because at the time they were being sentenced to prison also, exploratory drilling has started at Preston New Road. Oh, and there are tremors, there are earthquakes. And so that was on the headline news for a week. That was great, but it wasn't anywhere near the scale um, of Ender Galenda. And I think for me, what's appealing about Ender Galenda is the way in which we can do very fierce direct action at the source of the fossil fuel industry in a way where we can get off scot-free. You know, we never had any intention of getting people arrested. People get arrested. It's an unhappy consequence. But we do absolutely everything we can to ensure that people can cause significant economic disruption to the coal mines and not get any legal repercussions. And it's only recently, actually, that some activists have actually been convicted 
of um, any endergal ender action. For, for many years, there wasn't a single conviction as a result of any endergal ender action. And so for me, it, it, we have to target it at source, but we also need the numbers. Um, and those kind of two, I think, are the magic recipe. <laughs> I feel like Just Stop Oil, you've got few people that are incredibly dedicated and you want more. XR, you're kind of doing, you know, you're changing your strategy of like, okay, we're not doing direct action for the sake of it. We're not causing intentional disruption and we're trying to make it a lower bar so that we're building a broader coalition. I guess I'm somewhere in the middle there, which is like, we need a lot of people, but we also need to do, have a lot of people doing quite fierce action at source. Rachel, I can see that you're keen to, keen to add something here. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating to hear what Endergländer have been able to do in Germany. That's really, really incredible. But I have a sort of a few things to say on that. Um, first, really, I would just also reject the idea that power is just in the fossil fuel infrastructure. That is obviously an incredibly important point where power is in sort of this material understanding of power. But as I said before, power is in, there's a multiple pillars of power in society. It's in the media, it's in the financial institutions. That's why XR went and smashed the windows of Barclays Bank. It's in the media institutions. That's why we come and do these interviews and we try to speak to these institutions or um, the just the, the stop the press action that XR did as well. So there are multiple pillars of power in society. So I would reject the notion that you need sort of strategically mobilizing people means only targeting fossil fuel infrastructure. I think it's still very important and just if we'll have done that, it's just unfortunately, again, this is the UK, this isn't Germany. I do not believe you would be able to get away scot-free blocking fossil fuel structure in the UK because Just Stop Oil have been there and we have done that and we did not get away scot-free. Uh, people were charged with aggravated trespass, they were charged with criminal damage, causing a public nuisance. They had quite sort of extreme court cases. Uh, some of my friends still, their cases won't be until 2024 and they might be on tags. They might have really severe bail conditions for several years. So again, it is really important to think about the national context in which you are taking action. And while you can be inspired by movements which have been really successful in other countries, you do have to remember this British state is incredibly authoritarian and fascist. And the way that they treat protesters is terrifying. Um, also, unfortunately, the British state um, media had no interest when Just Up Oil was blocking fossil fuel infrastructure. I mean, if I can say this on here, Navarra media didn't post on, didn't post about it. They only did post about the sort of attentional actions like the F1 or the soup throwing. Um, I don't know why, and I find it difficult when uh, spaces like this say, um, why don't you go and block fossil fuel infrastructure when there was no interest when we were doing it. So I would just sort of w want to raise those sort of issues into the conversation, um, as well as the problem of scale um, in terms of the numbers of coal mines in Germany versus the number of sort of open oil and gas wells in the UK. You know, we've got over 300, uh, some of which are in the middle of the ocean, which would obviously require very different sort of forms of organizing. I'm not saying that we can't, um, but it is just different. So we do need to be aware of that as well as the fact of sort of temporality, um, just up oil, what we are doing, what our key demand is, is to stop all new oil and gas licenses because it's not just enough to shut down everything that's happening right now. We also cannot have these new projects being open because that oil will continue to be used for decades. And that is a death sentence for, for, for all of us, really. So, Claire? Yeah, just on, on that, it's, it's 
also useful to think about strategically who's being brought into proximity with the movements in a way that helps them to see that they're part of it. And I guess, you know, you can look at what XR's doing and say, well, we're inviting the, you know, ornithologists and the people that are very upset about water being full of shit and the people that are really angry with the government's plans for nature and some of them are going to be Tories and I'm going to be nice to them, right? Like, we're going to bring all these people out and then hopefully they are going to see themselves in proximity with people who facing arrest, get their houses raided, people who've done time on remand, people who've been sentenced, people who've got suspended sentences, tags, whatever. Because what I'm excited about is bringing a way of knitting people together in a space that helps them to go, oh, maybe we are actually all part of the same thing, despite the fact that we might be, you know, have our differences of opinion or we might, you know, see ourselves as operating in quite different areas of, of British society and culture. Um, and and obviously, like, the government, and I've been seeing them flying into inboxes just this week, like, in more and more and more injunctions from fossil fuel companies, which come at people in the movements with this kind of person's unknown uh, title, so they're basically for anyone. Um, and... You know that that is a that is a real serious kind of like ratcheting up of the potential to take severe legal action against you know individual people who take themselves and and, and get in the way of things. And again, you know that's not really, to my mind, had enough attention from the from the media. There hasn't been enough of a public conversation for people to understand that. Like, I would love to see a map where someone's like coloured it in all the bits of the UK that are injuncted. Because I reckon it'd be about half the fucking country. And what that means is that there's always an opportunity for like civil law to be weaponized against people. And you know that that's a direct route into jail. And you know that that's a direct route to having your assets stolen. And so the the risk has been sort of like cranked up in a way that I think a lot of people are, com are completely kind of um, unaware. But at the same time, you know, the lawyers are responsible group who's just come out and said, actually, you know, we're going to refuse to comply by some of the sort of standards of our profession. Because quite frankly, it, you know, guaranteeing to uh, society that you will advocate for more oil and gas pro projects if you get given the case as a lawyer, it has got nothing to do with justice at all in these circumstances. And so the world is changing. And the climate is having a big effect on lots of things, but it's also having an effect on the very notion of what justice is and what it can be and how people who are supposed to uphold it should operate. And I think the incoming 120 legal professionals, including KCs, including like high, highly respected barristers, is a, an extremely welcome addition to our sort of broader ranks in the public image, if you see what I mean, to say, look, you know, climate activism also means standing up in your profession and saying, this isn't right, and you can you can sack me if you want, you can debar me if you want, disbar me, but you, I, I'm, I, this is not okay. Nothing about this is okay. So there's something interesting happening there in terms of people that you might have previously thought, well, 
somebody who works in that chambers has got nothing to say to this person who's glued themselves to the road or this person who does work with Ender Glenda, but actually they're all on the same team suddenly goes, oh, maybe we are, <laughs> maybe we are becoming something better. This actually brings me very nicely to um, a question I had about a bit about kind of what activists are. So the American union organiser, Jane McAlevey, makes a distinction between advocacy, mobilising and organising. So advocacy doesn't involve ordinary people. That's kind of, you know, people in privileged positions pressuring decision makers on behalf of others. Mobilising is, you know, bringing large numbers of people into the fight, but they're usually kind of the same people, so like dedicated activists. And then organising is place the agency for success with a continually expanding base of ordinary people. And each one is kind of connected to like a different theory of power. I was wondering what you guys thought. Is is this a useful typology for thinking about climate activism and the different roles that people can play? Alice, can I bring you in? As, a, as an onlooker for XR when XR first emerged, I I guess I viewed it as like, you know, is it a flash in a pan? Like, are these people going to stick around? Are these people just coming for the demo, demo and then they go home and live their lives, you know, un, kind of unchanged? And I guess what's been quite interesting is that, sure, there is like a large, you know, or there is a component of XR people that have come to the demonstrations that have been like that. But what's been interesting is to see the people that have stuck around. Um, and I guess what some of us in the movement were predicting, which is that when you build such large, like broad coalitions, and there isn't necessarily like a really like clear, coherent political um, like ideology, this is what we believe, which I'm not, you know, I don't think it has to happen. Um, you often get fragmentation then and you get like splintering. And so then all of the different groups that have like come out of people being involved in Extinction Rebellion, you know, um, not just the like the Hallam projects of Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil, but also, um, you know, people like getting into land justice stuff or people um, kind of doing like local campaigns uh, around biomass in, in Yorkshire. And so I guess I, I'm interested, yeah, to see whether people have kind of taken on from a more mobilising like role to a more like organizing role um, with Extinction Rebellion. But I guess the same the same can be said for Ender Galenda as well. You know, part of the reason that it appeals to me and still is the kind of like spectacle nature of it. It's the one-off, which people can be very critical of. And I guess at the moment in, in uh, Ender Galenda, we are very critical of, and we're not having a large Ender Galenda this year. It's much more localized direct actions camps. But the, the kind of one-off spe spectacle, I was able to go to Ender Galenda um, whilst I was working a full-time job. I would take time off as leave, go to Germany, shut down a coal mine, come back home and pre to pretend to my colleagues as if nothing had happened. And so for me, that was like a way I was able to maintain my climate activism whilst at the behest of, you know, the disciplines of like capitalism and needing to have a job. Um, and I guess that's that's the thing I kind of question about so much within, within my own life in terms of what I can do and what I can't do. And for other people, you know, when XR started, I was hearing people on the radio being like, I've, 
I've quit my job. I'm doing this like, like full time. You know, I, I, I'm like putting my like my whole like life force into this. This is the moment. This is now. And I'm like, oh God, please, please like don't completely destroy yourself. This is a marathon and not a sprint. But sometimes we have to run faster, right? And so I guess like, is that is that guy that I heard on the radio, is he still around? Like, is he still doing stuff? Or is he like super burnt out like like lots of other people that got very involved with XR and climate activism for the first time? So I don't know. Like, I guess what was exciting about being involved with Reclaim the Power and working with the communities resisting fracking is to see that shift happening for people that perhaps were coming at it. And I'm not saying this for all of the local resistance. There were some like, you know, like radical, uh, like anti-capitalist from the get-go there, but also just like, you know, ordinary people that were like, this whole fracking malarkey is terrible and I don't want it for my for myself or my children or my grandchildren and I am going to do whatever it takes to stop it and you know they did the legal channels they did the petitions and once they tried that then it was like right we're going to do direct action and reclaim the power we were like okay this is how we this is how we do direct action and um um you know, to see that kind of process happen and I think for like those people that were like fighting fracking on the front lines, sure, they've not all gone into organizing roles. But like, I think that it's been exciting to see that transition and something that can like allow for change more on a long term basis. And that, you know, like we are in it for the long haul and it's we've got to make sure that we can we can do whatever it takes, um, but not destroy ourselves at the same time, which is, you know, a perpetual existential question, right? How do we how do we fight against climate injustice without destroying ourselves? I don't know. I'd do my best. Claire, I'd be really interested to hear what your experience of that has been within XR. Well, I guess what we set out to do when we started the movement was partly to encourage a culture of service. One of the reasons for inviting people out of a kind of very uh, materialist or utilitarian mindset and across into um, a place of holding themselves in, in virtue ethics first was intentionally to try and support a movement of people who would actually be able to sustain themselves better. What I've seen play out is that you can look at some of the people who take super high risk actions from say Christian climate action and they've been some of the most um, courageous people that uh, that I've seen and it's very clear to me from the last few years that people of uh, some faith and some connection to a sense of like virtue first and strategy second somewhat, uh, they survive much more easily. Because when you're focused on winning and you're doing something where you are extremely likely not to, <laughs> then it's fucking painful and everyone gets worn out. Whereas if you're in the business of going, I'm not sure whether this is definitely going to work, but it's definitely the best thing I can find 
And I know why I'm doing it. And I'm doing it to be the best person that I can be, given the things that I know and the position that I'm in and the privilege I have. What can I use? What resources do I have? What time do I have? Uh, what profile do I have? What stuff do I have access to? How little can I work? How cheaply can I live to give more time to this? Whatever it is that you're like trying to, you know, understand and work through. If you do that from a place of like, leading on service first, you have a much higher chance of survival in my experience. And um, and so it's like interesting that, you know, the people who care less about being effective are more effective <laughs> in, a, in a paradoxical sense like that. And so um, I don't know who the guy is that you heard on the radio, but one of the guys uh, who came and joined into with us right the early stages who came from the city of london um total ledge just walked in and was like give me a job what shall i do i've quit my job city's a shithole um <laughs> i'm here um he did do a really long service this person andrew um and he's not with xr now but he did stick around for a really really long time and i guess you know in some ways there's a there's a consideration to be made about like if we're talking strategy, what is um, what is realistic about whether or not you can sort of like hold on to people for an extremely long time? And I I don't know the research, but I'd be really interested to know, like by the end of the suffrage movement, who was like still there from the beginning? By the time you get like a, a win in American civil rights, who's still there from the beginning? And probably the answer is loads of women that no one knows the names of because the hardcore people that I've noticed in XR and in most organizing spaces who are consistent are women who are emotionally intelligent, who shoulder an enormous amount of social labor, um, who help everything to not fall apart <laughs> and, um, you know, and stay and stay and stay and stay and stay and nobody knows who they are. I find um, your experience of Christian Action Group being the most committed and most courageous really interesting, I think, for a few reasons. And I guess what it's made me think of is, you know, obviously having that kind of religious motivation for doing something can be very, very powerful. And I guess that makes me ask the question, is having a political motivation and I guess an ideological grounding to your activism, does that play the same role? The question, I guess, being like, does a movement need to have a politics and an ideology in order for it to succeed. Um, I guess this is, this is particularly interesting when it comes to XR, because of course, historically, XR has said that it's beyond politics. Do you have any thoughts on that? The term beyond politics we put together in order to try and popularise citizens' assemblies, which we saw as a way of getting a representative group of ordinary citizens around tables to make decisions that politicians couldn't or wouldn't be able to make. And in the sense that climate is existential and exponential, which I think is are two facts that actually most people don't really understand on a visceral level. You do need to do something that's beyond the current paradigm politically because it, there's too much at stake not to. If you were in your place of work and it was on fire and you knew that the people in the office next door were like, Tories and you didn't like them, would you leave them there or would you still go and drag them out of the building? I mean, it sounds facetious, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of really serious about like needing to talk to people that we disagree with 
the question about ideology is interesting because I've noticed that if we had a shared ideology in XR that we were like, we definitely believe in that and we don't like people that think that, then it probably would give us an, an easier sense of identity with which to sort of hold people together. At the current moment we find ourselves in, what would be highly valuable to us would be to connect to actually um, a sense of faith. And I don't think that you have to have faith in a specific God or in a organized religion sense. But I definitely, to have done the things that I've done in the last four, five, six years, have done so from a position of some faith. And I can't tell you precisely what that is because I'm like not spiritually wise enough to know how to articulate it. But I definitely believe in human beings uh, enough to think it's worth going to prison for them, even the ones I don't like. There's something that we could explore as a broader movement about how at the present moment, given the unique circumstances that we're in, how can an, a sense of collective faith and ultimately like building our work on love, how can that hold a movement together where we might not be able to agree on an ideology? Mm. Rachel, are similar conversations around faith and politics happening in Just Stop Oil at the moment? I think some of what Claire said is definitely resonant for uh, those in Just Stop Oil. There is a real faith that we need to try whatever we can, we need to do whatever we can, and that we are going to win. There is a real strong, firm belief in Just Stop Oil that we can do it and we can sort of solve this fight. But as Claire said, uh, this notion of sort of a singular ideology is not particularly important. And I think it stems from a particular understanding of politics itself that is a bit antiquated. Uh, there's a really great article, I'm not sure if anyone's seen it, I think it's in The New Socialist, uh, called I Would Simply Blow Up a Pipeline, The Left and Just Stop Oil, which sort of deals with these, this kind of criticism that is made about this sort of lack of a singular ideology. And it comes back down to just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, what these groups have been doing is doing politics. And we've been doing politics in a way that is really different to existing kind of left-wing modes of thinking, of organizing, of taking action. And it's been really successful. It's gotten a lot of attention and it's made the government absolutely terrified. Earlier we were talking about some of the sort of legal repercussions that happen when you take action, but the legal backlash against Just Stop Oil has been absolutely colossal. It's been really, uh, I would say, dare I say, even more than sort of what's happened with Extinction Rebellion. We had the police crime and sentencing bill that came targeting um, Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, and other groups. But we have this new public order bill and this new sort of idea of a public nuisance as almost the worst sort of harm you could ever do. The government have sort of said, if you inconvenience the public, you are causing sort of this more sort of such extreme harm that you could go to jail for several years. And they are really over swinging. Uh, this bill specifically mentions Just Stop Oil. And all of this really shows is that we're really causing quite a lot of fear. What we've been doing is really successful. And we've been able to do that without having to agree on politics. Um, I've had discussions and people have, you know, they, they might vote for someone different than me. And that doesn't matter because what we can agree on is the importance of this fight. What we can agree on is that we will do whatever is nonviolently possible in order to 
cause this kind of change. So I think, um, as Claire was saying again earlier, it is really important to be able to have these kinds of conversations to bring people who are Tories, who come from different backgrounds together and say, we have a lot of differences, but what do we have in common? And what can we, what do we all care about that we want to fight for? And I think all of us want life. All of us want to prevent harm and to prevent suffering. We want a better world. Um, we want a more equal world. Uh, we have lots of conversations when we do roadblocks, when we do these disruptive actions um, with people who quite often initially are pretty upset, um, but we have people and we go over and we speak to them and we listen and we empathize. And we hear that often what they're really upset about are the exact same things that we're upset about and we're able to share and come to a sort of shared understanding. You know, we are all upset about how expensive our energy bills. We are upset that the government is subsidizing fossil fuel companies instead of investing in renewable energy, in spite of the fact that it is cheaper and it would give us more energy security if we were not reliant on this international market. We are all angry that we do not have safe and affordable public transportation, that we are reliant on this fossil fuel infrastructure. We are all angry that the UK has some of the leakiest homes in Europe. We are freezing. You know, these are political choices and people from across the political spectrum agree on this and we are able to have these conversations. And it's something that's really important is finding these points of agreement find, and then figuring out how we can all work together to put pressure on the existing political system from outside the political system because existing institutions have failed us, existing ways of organizing and moving, including on the left, they have failed, they have not been successful. So we're trying to do whatever we can, trying to think new, creative, you know, a politics for the 21st century. Alice, I imagine you maybe have slightly different perspective here. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I just want to start by like, every movement is plural, like every single movement, a movement is a collection of people. And uh, every, you know, with every collection of people, there's going to be, you know, slight differences in how you view things or large differences, whatever collection of people there are, there's going to be differentiation with the opinions that you have. So I guess, so, you know, you might see Ender Galender as perhaps more like, has a like a more like, I don't know, narrow ideology or whatever. Um, but really, it's just that we all agree that the problem is with capitalism. And so like, you know, with Extinction Rebellion, you all agree that climate change is bad, right? And so you're not, you don't really have people that don't think that climate change is bad, right? And that's your that's that's a level of your ideological unity, right? And so you're not encouraging people that think cli climate change is great to be involved with you. That's ridiculous. And so so you know, it's it's about to what extent do you agree on on a thing? Uh, and whether it's like, you know, across, in theory, across the political spectrum or not. And I guess the reason why I think that it's important to uh, have an anti-capitalist perspective is because how do you target power without understanding where power lies in society? So I understand that power in society is mainly economic and our economic system is capitalism. And so if I want to go over, go and go and target the, the, the powerful and the holders of power, I have to recognize that so much power is created through capitalism. There is a capitalist ruling class that is taking us to like absolute horrendous climate catastrophe. 
you know? And so it just means that all it, all it means is that you go, okay, these are the people really, really responsible. And the vast majority of us didn't choose this. Um, and so we're going to target um, those like loci of power, whether that's a coal mine, whether that's a gas power station, whether that is a, a um, you know, glass window of a bank. It's about having the ability to talk about power and understand that power is, is, is economic in our capitalist society. So that all, that's all it is really. And I mean, I think it definitely like changes who, who gets mobilized for sure. And I don't think that we should only have anti-capitalist organizing. I think there is a place for broad-based environmental organizing and that's great. You know, it's, it's recognizing that we all have a place within the ecology of the environmental movement. Um, but I guess what gives us like, um, you know, the ability to work in unity and with such like um, kind of strength in our unity and in, in, in our, our understanding of the world and our purpose is by going, okay, we're all anti-capitalist environmentalists. We, we target the, the, the centers of capitalist power, of fossil fuel capitalist power, and we do so in a way that's like vehement and, uh, you know, in large numbers. Um, and so, yeah, Ender Galenda, it's a lot of like able-bodied young people and I'm under no illusion. There's also been great efforts to include, um, uh, part of the strategy is using different kind of blocks called fingers to have a finger that is um, more for disabled people, uh, which is great so that disabled people can come on the action in a way that, you know, historically was seen as quite an, um, an ableist thing to do, to be able to break through police lines and shut down a coal mine. Um, and I guess it's like, yeah, it's like, who do you want to get mobilized? And I, I love the like middle-aged women in XR. They're great. I love them. Um, are, are they like, I don't know, are, do, are they all anti-capitalist, uh, you know, behind closed doors in, in their houses? I think a lot of them are, right? Um, and that's great. I guess like, it just gives me, it gives me and the movements that I'm part of the language to understand power. And if you understand power, then you can understand how to, uh, to target it in a way that's most effective. And I do want to come back to the idea that like, you know, I'm, I'm talking about Ende Galenda in Germany. I've heard this argument so many times whenever I talk about the things that attract me to Endergalenda that like, oh, it's in Germany and everything is totally different there. There's no possibility that we can ever possibly replicate anything there. Um, like, like the, it's the Greens and the Social Democrats in power now in, in Germany and they're going hard for fossil gas. They're going real hard for fossil gas. And so... And the German radical leftists that I organize with are under no illusion that the German state is also an authoritarian state. They they are very ready to beat us to a pulp in trying to stop us from doing our actions. And I think that's one of the like the harshest repercussions that we get. We might not have loads of legal repercussions, but you might break an arm or you might, you know, have uh, the German polizei um, battening you and pepper spraying you. And, and I, I don't want to like look at, look at things with rose tinted spectacles. Like it's brutal and it's horrible. It's really horrible. And the German state and the German police force are very happy to like, to meter out really, uh, horrible kind of, you know, um, beatings and repercussions to stop us doing, doing what we want to do. Um, and, 
yeah, I just I just think that sometimes it's really easy to fall into a trap of like, it's different. It's a different country. They're doing things differently. Like we we managed to get like thousands of people to, um, you know, to anti-fracking protests. And I th- I do maybe it's maybe it's naive, maybe it's faith. You know, but I do I do have the faith that we would be able to mobilize thousands of people again to shut down um, fossil capitalist infrastructure. I think that that that's what we need and that's what the time calls for. And I think that the question of faith is very interesting. And it's something that I guess has kept me going along for such a long time. Like I joined the climate movement when we were at quite a low ebb, there were people that were really like reeling from severe um, repercussions of the undercover policing that was happening within the environmental movement um, with Mark Kennedy. Um, And they were really like scared of newcomers. And I just kept on going, you know, people, people thought that I was an undercover and I'm like, okay, think I'm an undercover, but I need to do this because I need to be able to look younger generations in the eye and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for everything that you have had to been born into, but I am doing my absolute utmost. And to be able to look at those those young people in the eye and say, I did the very, very best that I could. And that that's faith. I mean, what else is it unless unless that's faith? And so yeah, I guess I guess my faith is is knowing that capitalism is an absolutely abhorrent way of organizing affairs in society. Uh and that it is inherently anti-ecological. Its inherent contradictions are that to, towards uh, ec- um, ecological destruction and destruction of human beings. Um, you know that, like that, that is an immutable wrong in the way that we organise society. And I just have to do everything I fucking can to stop that machine from functioning. I'm sure that uh, many of us and also many of those listening have been involved in activist projects or political projects that we feel have on some level failed and the devastating impact that that can have on uh, morale. Um, And I want to ask each of you, are you personally losing or gaining confidence in your strategy over time? And have there been moments where you kind of feel yourself being drawn towards dropping out or I guess in potentially in the other direction towards violence I'm personally not worried about being drawn into engaging in violence myself it's not my thing (laughs) it's not to say that if someone's getting shot at I think they should like lie down and take it in the name of non-violence it's not I'm not a pacifist like that but I am committed to non-violence that's the bit of the movement that I'm that I feel committed to being in. I, it's extremely painful to look at the reality of 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 where we stand. I mean, there are many reasons why you might look at the facts and think, well, that I'm not sure there is any point really anymore. I do think that even the the greatest experts in our societies and in the world, and the IPCC processes and the reports that come out are uh, self-censoring, conservative. Um, I think the situation that we find ourselves in collectively today in the world is actually a lot worse than I think. 
because it's so unthinkable. That said, it's not over till it's over, is it? There is always something to be done and there is that, you know, cheesy old, if you if you thought it was all over, would you still plant a tree today if you didn't think anyone would get to sit under it? Well, yes, you would, wouldn't you? We, I think, have to keep on going despite, you know, how uh, emotionally difficult that can be. Feeling a sense of uh, collective failure or disillusionment with the way that we're organising, I think, you know, sometimes that can be very healthy because it does feel like the movement at large is, in some cases, I think, not looking at the big picture. I think not confronting the truth. You know, where is the where is the conversation in the in the climate movement about uh, Nansen passports? for example, like a climate passport that gives people access to countries. If the last IPCC report said by 2030, 700 million people from the continent of Africa may be displaced on a bad case scenario. And bear in mind, everything we ever study tracks worst case or bad case scenarios. We never look at climate reports and go, oh, we're doing quite well then on that front. It's always bad news. So if we think there's going to be hundreds of millions of people, 700 million people is half of the population of the entire continent of Africa. If you can imagine like displacing half of a continent of that size, uh, throw into the mix, you know, the monolithic global racism, Afrophobia that exists in the world, it's like just that one element of the information on the available to us alone is like, wow, like, no, like, there's not many people really talking about what we're going to do about that. I mean, it's not, <laughs> not, not that I'm seeing anyway. And obviously, I'm like trying to work out at the moment how to like help people to have these conversations. But it, you know, we're facing some very, very daunting things. And I think a disillusionment with the way that things are going and the lack of success and the reality of what's coming at us is sometimes is quite healthy to, to have so that we can go, right, well, we are where we are. Are we still doing the right stuff? You know what I mean? And I don't know whether we're doing the right stuff. I fucking hope we're helping. Um, but, I, but I do think that sometimes, you know, being a bit down on the lack of success or the lack of progress can be helpful because it can make you go, okay, let me take myself out of the picture here and start with blank piece of paper and go, well, if I started it from scratch today, what would I do? Sometimes some of that thinking is very, very helpful because I think, you know, the movement can be quite self-referential. It can say, well, you know, we did this in Paris or this is what happened in Glasgow or in Copenhagen or wherever. And, you know, perhaps reflecting on having a good time for a while with some people you agree with is like not very fucking helpful strategic conversation you know, some of the conversations going to be quite painful that we need to have. Um, and so, you know, it's it feels to me like, yeah, it, it, we've, we've got to take care of ourselves and each other. Uh, and my main uh, piece of advice on that is, is, is that in this line of work, you're usually self-organised. And so nobody has the power to tell you to piss off and have a rest. And I could do take my own advice on that one as well. Bayo Akomalafi says, time is short, we must slow down. Rachel? 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting question about failed projects. Um, sort of the first thing that comes into my mind was a project I was marginally somewhat involved with um, when I was living in London, which was the Kill the Bill movement. And, you know, it was something that felt really important and really powerful at the time to try and stop this police crime and sentencing bill. And while parts of the bill were thrown out, um, a good chunk of it went forward, um, repressing activists marching and going for anything, really. It was really, really terrible. But from that, that was the first time that I encountered Extinction Rebellion outside of my kind of really critical, theoretical, academic circle. And I met some really cool people who really shattered my expectations um, that they were all going to be super white or super liberal and not sufficiently this enough or that enough. And it sort of led me into that new space, which then did lead me into getting involved with Just Stop Oil. So as a f and, and Just Stop Oil, we are continuing to resist this authoritarian state. We have continued to resist the public order bill, the continuation of the bill, the Kill the Bill movement was standing against. And, you know, in terms of losing or gaining faith in a strategy, of course, as we've all said, it's really hard and it's really exhausting, um, particularly when you're confronting power in any shape, in any form, it's so tiring. And whether it's um, actual oppression and violence from the police, uh, whether it's legal paperwork, injunctions, court cases, trials, whether it's just your friend saying you look like an idiot when you were on the front of the Daily Mail or someone posting photos of you on their TikTok and going viral as a meme. It's tiring. It's tedious. But I don't feel seduced by violence. The more I've learned about nonviolence, the more I've seen it as a strat um, sort of nonviolence as a strategy, the more I have faith that we can achieve something and that the kind of harm that could happen if we lose sight of that. Um, and look, you know, we can look into books and we can look into theory and we can get advice. But as I think one of the questions raised earlier, um, sometimes these theories are looking at what's worked in terms of toppling authoritarian regimes or what's worked in terms of getting civil and political rights. We don't know what it's going to take to change this fossil capitalist system, whatever we want to call it. We don't know. There is no rubric because it's so much bigger than anything that's ever been sort of attempted before. So, you know, mom doesn't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. And there's no perfect activist. There's no perfect strategy. There's no perfect action. One thing that always really keeps me going, some words by James Baldwin, he says, uh, just because something is faced does not mean it can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. What sort of gives me hope, what helps me keep going, in spite of the sort of crises of faith that might happen when you're sat at home and a giant stack of legal paperwork comes through your door saying you're banned for marching on these roads in London, and if you do, we're gonna do this and blah, blah, blah is the people that you've uh, that we've met the people in just up oil inspire me endlessly uh, we've been speaking a little bit about those in the faith movement but we have so many vicars in just up oil um, so many people from christian climate action there's uh, i think a 90 year old vicar supaf reverend supafit uh, she takes her little chair and she she's goes to the she snuck into the oil infrastructure and she got involved and she's gone she goes on the roadblocks and 
Meeting people like this is what gives me hope, seeing that people have been able to maintain this sense of urgency in this fight. Whatever you're doing when you're in these kinds of spaces, you are creating new ways of caring and loving and sustaining. And something about that is just so beautiful that in spite of all of these, you know, little debates about strategy and sort of failures of hope when maybe what felt like a good strategy doesn't work. Um, these relationships are what I think really sustains um, things and keeps it going. And Alice. Yeah, the question of violence. I'm going to be one of those classic rad people be like, what is violence? You know, it depends on your conceptualization of violence. Like I think taking us to absolute climate ruination is an incredibly violent thing to do from um, the ruling elite. I think that like allowing people to suffer physically because they they can't have, you know, access to healthcare is a really violent thing. I think like forcing people to work ridiculous hours is really violent. Like these are all really structurally violent things. Um, and so like recognizing the scale of the brutality that we live in and of the crisis that we face I've, of course, I've thought about violence in terms of destroying a piece of, of fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, whether that is pyrotechnics of some kind, is, is that violent? Like, you know, doing so in a way that doesn't harm a human person, but destroys a piece of infrastructure. The ruling elite would say that's violent. I would say that that's not violent. Um, but it's, a, it's an inherently gray area, in my opinion. Some people would say breaking through police lines is violent. I think that that's totally fine and that's totally legit. And we do so in a way that is non-combative, that is, tries to de-escalate things. It's, it's the police that are violent to us. You know, it's the police um, that are the ones using batons and pepper spray in Germany or in the UK kind of physically restraining us it's interesting the the police will will talk about a protest that ended in violence but who are the ones that started that violence usually them um but when i think about it in terms of my own life and what i've done so far and what i'm prepared to do it's difficult right and i think this is the reason why we haven't seen a large swathe of um kind of really contentious action is okay say for the benefit of this like you know of this rationale I would blow up a pipeline I would be arrested I would be sentenced to prison I would be in prison for a very long time I want a child one day I want a child despite the absolute like climate um you know, brutality that we face. I feel like to 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 have a child in this um, environment is a is a a vehement act of hope, and one um, that is not of despair when we choose to stop having children. And I have t the total you know I have total empathy for those that that choose to as a result of the climate crisis. But I know that like that would be horrible if I wasn't able to be there for the 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 like you know the growth of my child bringing that child up and I, that also would be used as a 
as leverage against me, as a bargaining chip against me. There were some incredible activists in the late 90s and early 2000s in the US, part of Earth First, that did some incredible arson attacks. They set fire to a logging piece of infrastructure. They set fire to a horse meat abattoir. And they did some incredible actions that caused severe um, economic damage to those industries. And the FBI had no leads on them for, for years, for years, because those activists did exactly what they'd agreed to do, which was complete, be completely stum about it, not say a single word to anyone about any of these like highly contentious actions that they'd been, been part of. But there was one guy, and the FBI took a massive risk here, as one guy who had a child and he had a history of substance abuse, like or substance issues. Um, and they said to him, we know that you're a part of these actions when they had no evidence to, to that effect. And we're going to send you to prison for a very long time unless you cooperate. Um, and as a result of uh, threatening him with never seeing his child grow up, they were able to um, get a, a confession from him and to dob all of the other activists in. And so you'd, it requires such a level of meticulous planning um, and such a level of, you know, putting your whole life into um, kind of an underground action of sorts, um, that it's something that we're, that a lot of us are too scared to do, you know? That's not, that doesn't mean that we've not thought about it. Yeah, it would be devastating for the indiv individuals involved. That being said, you know, I, I stand in solidarity with anyone that's prepared to do something like that. Am I personally? Like, it's a question I have grappled with for a very long time. And to the question of dropping out, and I, and I guess this is somewhat related, um, have I ever considered dropping out? Yes. Um, in recent years, yes. Um, so I, you know, as part of being involved in the movement for 13 odd years, I've met a lot of people and I've met a lot of people that I've bonded with very heavily when doing these kinds of actions. And I'm now at a point where over a two year period of time, seven of my comrades have died. And I was like, I'm not sure I can carry on. It felt to me, and I'm not trying to do a disservice for those that are in war zones, absolutely not. But like, it felt to me like I was in a war zone of people dropping around me, people dying around me at such a incredible rate that it propelled me into a heightened sense of stress for quite a prolonged period of time. I, I, had, to, I had to take some time. I needed some time from that. And it, it coincided with the pandemic. So we weren't doing kind of in-person action so much anyway. But was brutal and was really horrible. You know, I, I really struggled with my mental health and it's it's a a journey with being able to to grieve and come to terms with that reality. But it's it's something that I also recognize is that I was very blessed to know all of these wonderful comrades, comrades that died for their cause, comrades that were there putting their life on the line and then paying the ultimate price. So, yeah, it's something I've thought about dropping out. But for me, part of my kind of understanding around it is that, like, this is the brutal reality of the system that we live in, that so many of these people were 
kind of left by the wayside and were kind of had to deal with their trauma completely on their own and choosing to take their own life seemed like the sanest option in a very insane world. And with regards to the question of failure, so being involved in the student movement, we didn't win. <laughs> um, we didn't stop the government from uh, tripling the university tuition fees to an, over nine grand a year. But um, I recognize a whole generation of people were radicalized in that movement. People that some set up Navara Media or some decided to do some incredible uh, interventionist work in the Labour Party. And so I've seen like the massive success that even though we failed in the student movement in terms of the policy um, shift, I can see that like across at least my cohort, we are a lot more left wing than, you know, the generation above us. And that doesn't seem to be like not continuing with the with the Gen Z uh, generation either. And so that gives me a lot of hope. Um, but also as well with the Labour Party, I guess that also fails the Corbynist intervention pro project in, in the Labour Party in terms of, I guess, the very ambitious uh, target of trying to gain electoral power. But having said that, I, I also see lots of those people that have that kind of came through that, you know, doing other things. I guess my faith in direct action is that it gets the goods. Um, and I'm not I'm not advocating only direct action. I think that we need a plethora of strategies, including how we how we deal with the state and and the capitalist state um, and an electoral politics as well. Failure is important to recognize and to learn from, but it's also important to see the successes that aren't just around policy shift and the successes that can amount uh, from a movement that has failed. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Claire Farrell from XR, Alice Swift from Endicalenda and Rachel Bosler from GSO. Thanks for having us come out on the streets on the 21st. Yeah, and thank you. And on the 24th onward, Just Up Oil will be on the streets slow marching every day. So go to justupoil.org to sign up. See you on the streets. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support.